Welcome to Constructing Mindsets, discussing the building blocks of our mental health. Today, we welcome Vanessa King, who is a board member, head of psychology and head of workplaces at Action for Happiness. Action for Happiness is a movement of people committed to building a happier and more caring society. Members of the movement make a simple pledge to try to create more happiness in the world around them. Then Action for Happiness provides ideas and resources to enable people to take action at home, at work or in their community and many members from local groups to take action together. Vanessa is also author of 10 Keys to Happier Living. She plays an active role speaking nationally and internationally and also translating the latest psychological research into practical action to help individuals, organisations and communities enhance their wellbeing resilience. So incredibly interesting background and roles that you fulfil, Vanessa, and thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today to kind of share some of your wisdom with us. Um, first of all, I'm just really interested in, in how that career path came about for you. Um, you know, were you doing that all along? Did you have a light bulb moment where suddenly you just thought, yeah, that's, that's for me? Um, yeah, well, I think like many people, my career was a kind of series of stepping stones. Because if you'd have asked me when I left university, um, yeah, that I'd be doing, you know, what I'd be doing now. Well, actually, what I was do- doing now didn't exist in those terms. Um, the sort of psychological research that I'm involved in. Um, so I think like many people, one step kind of leads to the other. So I, my degree was psychology and biology, um, and then um, it seemed like a really great idea after that to thought a career in business. So I went and trained as an accountant, but having qualified, realised that I was much more interested in the people side of the organisation. I knew the numbers are important, but that wasn't what really kind of what really engaged me. So I, um, I was lucky enough to find a role in HR in investment banking. So I'm, um, it was a stepping stone really to the people side. Um, I managed a bonus pool in one of the big investment banks for a while because I could use the number side and things. And then I was um, a client at the bank of a big consultancy around people management change leadership development um, that focused on those things. So um, they offered me a role. So I went to work for them and got very interested. So for many years consulting with organisations around you know, processes and systems to bring the best out of people, to help identify talent, to grow it, to teach leaders to kind of how do you manage change effectively, all those things. Um, and it was great. It was really interesting and I enjoyed it for many years. But then um, I was at a, a World Congress of Leadership development and somebody this was in about 2008 and somebody was um, talking about this new this shift in psychological research um, that had happened um, that instead of focusing on why people get sick why things go wrong why things get dysfunctional and how to kind of manage or treat that um, there was a a growing theme of psychological research was, you know, on how do people kind of flourish, whether at work or in their lives in generally, and what can we learn from that to teach other people? Mm-hmm. So that literally was a light bulb moment. So I, was, I can see myself sitting there. It was, I think, it was in the Excel Centre, in this kind of conference, big conference thing with this talk, and I just thought, wow, that's the future, because it was very much aligned with what I'd been kind of naturally thinking. And I, yeah. Wow, came back, googled it found that you could go study this stuff in the state. The epicenter for it was in, in the states. The with um, Martin Seligman, who was one of the kind of well, one of the leading researchers on depression, so mostly depression, and, and had become president of the American Psychological Association. But he'd had um, a realization that over ninety percent of psychological research had focused on what he said on the minus side of life and how to get back to zero. But there'd be very, relatively very little psychological research on how do you not just stay at zero, but actually increase to the plus side of life. And then, you know, how does that buffer us from the, the minus side of life? So he kind of catalyzed, if you like, a broadening of psychological research. And the research base has grown hugely. So I took us back. I was lucky enough to get in at the University of Pennsylvania. I got in to do a master's. Um, so I took a sabbatical went over and then the rest of it, as they say, is history. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was literally a light bulb moment, you know, kind of thing. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so that, that sort of positive psychology that we're talking about, 
Um, is that, you know, are, are there different elements to it? Is it is it purely about sort of happiness or are there other elements that kind of shape it? For our kind of listeners, I'm wondering what, what sort of defines all the elements of positive psychology? Yeah, I mean, I, so first I should say, I really, 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 I mean, it is the name of the field. That is what I studied. I studied applied positive psychology. Um, but I really hate the term. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because people always think about it as, kind of positive thinking yeah so that means you know don't focus on what's wrong just kind of you know happy smiley face and that's not what it's about at all so firstly it's completely evidence-based secondly it covers a whole range of um things so from both the kind of pleasant emotions and why do those matter how to manage unpleasant emotions to navigate those how to kind of manage our mindsets and our thinking to actually not disturb ourselves. I mean, there's a lot of neuroscience in this. You know, that you know, um, Albert Ellis, who was one of the um, grandfathers of cognitive behavioural um, therapy, uh, famously said, "We're very good at disturbing ourselves." So, you know, our, this incredible full brain that we have, our human brain, that makes us be able to scenario plan, strategize, come up with you know great. Um, um, problems, solutions to complex problems, it's fantastic brain, but it also is great at kind of imagining the worst case scenario, yeah. ruminating, blah, 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 which actually triggers the threat systems in our brain. So how do we manage that? And also looking at, so you know, when we think about happiness, I mean, I use the terms happiness, well-being, psychological well-being, mental health, if you like, um, and um, resilience, all quite interchangeably. Um, because if we think about, if we take happiness, I mean, it's interesting because most people, if you ask them, what do you ultimately want in your life? Or if you have to choose one thing or for your kids, you've got that. Most people say, I want to be happy. Yeah. But we don't really think about what that is and what that means. And often, you know, what's thrown around in the media is it, it's all about instant pleasure. But of course that wanes. But So that's part of it. And it's, that's not a bad thing, but if we only think about that sort of happiness, actually, it doesn't lead to a fulfilling life. So the other side, the you know, positive psychology, if you like, studies is um, um, what makes life fulfilling. What enables us to, you know, what's the best within us? What enables us to reach our potential? What enables us to? Um, stay the course towards meaningful goals. You know, it's really fascinating because um, I think, and on that point about happiness and you know defining it do you think we as humans aren't very good at defining what happiness means for us because we've sort of got so many options available and especially in this day and age you know it is about instant pleasure so do you think we misplace what happiness means quite a lot I think it's really I think we do a lot I think deep down I mean I you know with my work uh, you know often ask people you know what contribute you know what what does happiness mean to you or what does resilience mean to you or whatever and to get lots of people's um, thoughts. And when people talk about um, happiness, I mean, of course, they you know, jokingly say, oh, you know, a nice glass of wine or chocolate or whatever, or yeah. they just get it. But very soon people say, well, it's about my connections with other people. It's about doing work that I'm interested in and I can um, be fulfilled in and feel a sense of progress. It's about, you know, kind of knowing that I can make a difference in some way. So people unpack that, but that's not, you know, we live in a kind of very kind of, you know, uh, a world for many of us where our head, is, our head is a very crowded place. There's lots of messages coming in about what we should, should be doing and what we should do and what makes us happy. And so, you know, it's very easy to kind of focus on the pleasurable side. You know, it's all about short-term instant hits and pleasure. But yeah without actually stepping off and thinking about, well, how do I nurture these other bits in my life? Um, so I think, I think instinctively we, yeah, we're, we're pretty good at getting to some of the things that are really important for a kind of, the kind of happy, a happier, happier life in a broader sense of the world, but it's, we're not taught the skills and practices that yeah. can actually facilitate that. And I also say, I, mean, I also tend to use the word, and you know, these are the type of the framework I developed for action for happiness. And the book is happier, you know, happier as opposed to happiness, because everybody's life yeah. has ups and downs. Yeah. Every, I mean, everybody, every, no one goes through life kind of. Well, if they do go on this kind of life where everything's kind of 
wonderful and rosy the whole time, then that's probably actually a sign of mental illness in some degrees. Yeah. Because everybody's life has difficulties, and some of us have more difficulties than others, for sure, and at different times. But um, if we expect that, you know, I'm going to get to this place where, you know, everything's rosy all the time, then actually that's a recipe for, for feeling unhappy. Yeah. Because that's impossible. But we can find ways to navigate the difficulties and, you know, help us thrive and flourish a little bit more. Yeah. So I prefer the term happier living as opposed to happiness, you know, because it's... Um, yeah, happiness is almost seen as a bit of a utopian dream. Um, yeah. that, that is never really achievable and you're right if you always kind of look for that perfect ideal of I'm going to be happy all the time it, that's not also that's not what humans are meant to feel all the time we're meant to have those ups and downs we're meant to like have the huge range of emotions that we do um, because that helps us actually process thoughts and emotions in the right way yeah I mean there's a really interesting when I first went to study at Penn one of the first classes we had was with a psychologist who's probably spent the um, longest studying things like happiness and well-being, Ed Dina, um, and he asked us the question, you know, if you could take um, something or, you know, or have a magic thing that said you'd be happy all the time, would you take it, never feel worried, anxious, you know, but stressed, but that, would you take it? And it's a kind of really interesting philosophical question. Yeah. Because actually... Because sometimes, you know, like if we feel sad if we've lost someone or grief, you know, that is a sign that we've really loved. Yeah. You know, and it's so, um, you know, if we stress it, it's quite, the whole idea around stress is actually quite interesting because, um, you know, we, uh, we, we tend to think of stress as all bad, but actually stress isn't all bad. Um, stress is can energise us, can get us going. Stress is what, you know, little moments of stress is what gets us out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, it can make us, you know, perform ourselves. And actually, there's research shows that if we get stressed about stress, stress, then actually the stress is much more damaging than if we don't, if we just say, this is stress because I care about something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess on that point of, of stress and what we tie happiness to an emotion... Lucy, I know that you've got a point about work. I don't know if you want to raise that with Vanessa now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's fascinating to, uh, to hear what you're saying there. And I think this, uh, this acknowledging that happiness, there's a realism to it. You know, for me, my vision of future happiness is about, you know, being acknowledging that, you know, there's always performance issues or circumstances around projects or something like that that you're trying to manage acknowledging how much of this is within or without of our control and learning to be happy with the contribution that you've made and i think that that idea of a a future of happiness where you can everything does not have to be being delivered on time on budget you know everything does not have to be going great but you can just be happy with okay, I've done, you know, the, the best that I could on, on any given day and your your happiness is based on that self-confidence in, your, in yourself. I think that's a really interesting area. One of the strands within that is this an area called self-compassion. So um, people who are, you know, many of us, and particularly people who are kind of very driven, um, can be very hard on ourselves. And often I'd ask people, you know, if you... If a friend or a colleague messes up at something, how would you speak to them? How would you treat them? How, you know, what would you kind of, you know, how would you try and help them? Now, if you imagine you you making that same mistake or mess, you know, messing up or you know, um, not doing quite as well as you wanted to do in that same way, notice how you talk to yourself and how the tone that you're saying and we all talk to ourselves we all have those <laughs> ways of talking to ourselves yeah um in in studies they've shown that at least 75 percent of us are much tougher on ourselves than we would be on a, a friend or a colleague who'd made the same mistake now what that's doing that is not benign that is actually as i talked about before that is actually activating the kind of threat systems in your more primitive emotional brain 
because it doesn't you're that part of your brain does not respond does not distinguish between threats from the outside and threats from the outside so when somebody says vanessa you're so stupid you know you should have got that right everybody else gets that right why did you get that why did you get that wrong we're actually kind of creating real stress and anxiety for ourselves and so the field of self-compassion says you know and what's interesting the word compassion it's not about being soft on yourself. It's not about being soft on yourself. Because often we think we need those harsh voices. We need those kind of a, you know, stick, internal stick beating ourselves up to, um, to kind of do our best work. But the research shows that's not true. Um, and compassion, the word compassion, um, compassion has two components. One, it has a kind of courageous component to look at that, those struggles and difficulties and an active component, which is kind of being moved to do something about it. So when we're self-compassionate, it is about actually saying, hang on, Vanessa, I can see you're really wound up about making that mistake. You feel really embarrassed that you've made it, um, and that's not comfortable. But hang on. Everybody, you tried your best in this time, you did the best you can in those current circumstances, and everybody messes up sometime. And this is really important, this connection to other people, because when we kind of get, we start to beat ourselves up and, you know, think that, you know, we often think we're the only one, and that causes us to withdraw. But actually one of the most important components for um, our psychological well-being is this kind of sense of we're not alone, we are, you know, part of something, we're, part, you know, we're connected to other people. So when we in our brain say, hang on, Vanessa, yes, you messed up and that was embarrassing and you feel really uncomfortable, but you're not the only person that has messed up and you're not going to be, um, you know, you're not the first person, you're not the last person that other people mess up. That starts to kind of reduce our steps, stress system and start the, the, the activation of our threat system and um, activates another kind of primitive emotional system, which is something called the kind of care and connect system, which starts to let our anxiety. And then we can look at, okay, so how do we move forward from this? Or how do we learn from this? So it's one of those three components to developing. I always talk about it. You know, how can you notice it when you have an inner harsh critic? Thank you to that harsh critic, because they are trying to help you do your best, but they're not actually doing very effective at their job. What you really need is um, an inner wise coach. You know, a, a, a coach a coach is not someone that says they're there, it doesn't matter, because sometimes it does matter when you mess up. Yeah. A coach says, okay, you've messed up. How do we kind of learn from, deal with this and learn and learn from it um, for the future? So it's kind of, I've noticed that inner harsh critic and, you know, then say thank you to that one. Actually, what I need right now is an inner harsh coach and think about how that, that coach would talk to you. Not just what they would say, but how they'd say it. You can make this for people who do have a lot of tough inner self talk. This can literally be life changing. Literally life changing. That's that's really great advice and actually you know very fascinating. I'm guessing that ties into something that we see in imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, because yeah, it's, you know, that inner critic that's saying, you can't do this, this isn't you, you know, you're not what this is about. And I guess people struggle with that. Um, and it, that, that what we call it imposter syndrome. It's something that people deal with for years and years and actually can't actually address. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, there's a really great quote that we, we sometimes share, which is, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. Because <laughs> we see we see other people doing this, these great things, all that yeah. stuff, and then we try and do it, and of course it's difficult. But what we haven't seen is that person with all their struggle and journey and their learning to be able to do that really yeah. well. That's and, a very good quote. I like that. <laughs> and of course, when we are, you know, when you're working or trying on something new, or you're working on a complex problem, or um, trying to find a solution to something. You know, it's hard. It's, you, you kind of, you've got to try a lot of stuff and some of it's not going to work. You know, and we all often feel, you know, oh, I should know this, but I don't. But, you know, that yeah, that's part of the journey, really. Yeah. And, and actually what people find is when they start to say, um, show a, be able to show a little bit of a, a vulnerability to say, actually, you know, I'm feeling, you know, I'm not really feeling entirely confident in this. Am I on the right track? What that A, that gives you a bit of, get, a bit of feedback to see whether you are on the right track. And B, what that does is it creates an environment where other people can then say, hang on, I'm not 
Yeah. Um, I'm a bit, you know, I, I need a bit of help on this. Can you help me? And there's a lot of research around this case going from the individual to the organizational world, how the two connect, is around psychological, this idea of psychological safety. And in fact, um, uh, it comes from the work of a researcher called um, Amy Edmondson, but Google kind of uh, uh, uses this a lot because they, when they were looking at how do they kind of come up with the kind of highest performing, what was the formula, the algorithm for the highest performing teams? Um, and it, yeah, was it kind of personality types? Was it, um, um, uh, you know, the kind of way team processes were something really structured or really creative or whether they socialised outside of the work or not? And none of that made, none of that correlated with team performance. But what they found when they discovered this notion of psychological safety from Edmondson's research was um, how, when teams had the environment where if they were struggling or with something or if they made a mistake, um, they were able to share that, to raise that with the team. Or if they had an idea, they didn't self-censor and say, well, that's really, that's really, everybody will think that's stupid. They actually were able to share that. So when teams created that sort of psychologically safe environment, those teams become much higher performance. performance. And it was quite interesting in... Um, Edmondson's original research, how she discovered this, really, I learned quite an interesting story. She was looking at hospital teams and effectiveness of something or other on teams in hospitals. And, uh, you know, and then there were these various ratings of their performance on various factors. And what, what didn't seem to make sense was the teams that were rated the highest performance also seemed to have the highest reported errors on their wards. And she was like, this doesn't make sense because surely high-performing teams don't have, they have fewer errors. Mm-hmm. But what she found was that when, they, when, when the cultures and the environments were, when people were able to share or had you know, the courage to share when they need, you know, when they'd made a mistake, they shared them earlier and then the teams could work on, you know, rectifying them. And, and I'll just, on that point, because I, I find the whole piece on psychological safety very interesting. Because I guess what we're trying to do through the podcast is to build this open platform to talk about mental health and what it means and reduce a stigma, which ultimately, if you can do that in, in one sense, that helps create a feeling of psychological safety within, well, the remit of, of listeners of the podcast. But also when you think about trying to take that into the workplace and how you do that in the right way and create that culture, because you need to create it quite organically and it probably takes time to do that. I don't know in terms of timing how long these things take or if there's a particular thing that influences the timing that, that it takes to build a high-performing team and create that safety boundary. Well, the, the, the factors that, um, that were most pertinent, teams, these high-performing teams where they had high psychological safety were, one, I mean, obviously the team knew what they all knew what, what they were doing, um, and align towards a common goal. But this, the two things that made most difference was one, um, that the team were um, had a higher than average sort of social sensitivity to each other. So they checked in with each other. You know, how are you doing? Um, they noticed if somebody was not quite themselves. They also noticed if somebody was. Um, so this is. I mean, this is not just all about the negative side. It's also, they also noticed when somebody looked as if they had a curious question or perhaps they had a little idea bubbling and were able to ask that. And they also, over the course of a project, not necessarily, you know, in a, necessarily in a formulaic way, but everybody had equal voice. So often on teams you find, you know, the kind of real kind of extroverts or the kind of whatever, you know, um, or the boss gets all the airtime. Yeah. And particularly people who are quiet or introvert don't get any airtime. But actually, you know, Having allowing people to have that different voice, and you know, if somebody shares an idea, I've got an idea. It might be a bit, so I've got a bit worried. Not not pooing that or busting it down, but just letting time to just listen yeah. to that because you never know, and then one idea leads to another. So it's so it is about creating the psychological. It is about helping create an environment where people can be as open about having psychological struggles as well as as, as having a bad back or broken leg yeah um but it's also about how do we create an an environment where 
we can we can individually flourish, we can have individual well-being, but also we can perform well as a team. Yeah. It would be a great place, a much nicer place to work. And what do you think the... Because you, you kind of mentioned that we have to... There, there is a view, and this view I think is changing, but there is still a view that... Just particularly if you're a leader in a business that you have to kind of be this impenetrable person that is always on form and can never reveal any weakness I think there's more now a move to being an authentic leader and the importance that has but what do you think is the most important thing that a leader can do to be authentic with their teams and how much do you think that influences you know the culture of a business because if you've got a leader doing that that has a team of say 50 or 100 people it can make a huge difference I'm sure to the individuals if that leader is authentic about how they're feeling and doesn't put up the impenetrable barrier that some do yeah I think it's I think it's, I mean, it's, I mean I think first it's like leading and managing people is not easy mm. so I think I mean I think we should um, acknowledge that and I think we you know it's still endemic in organizations that you get promoted to managing and leading roles on your technical, starting from the te- your technical capability. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, so you've had years of training on your technical capability, but very little on your managing people. Yeah. And it's just as important. So I think, I think there's that. Um, and I think it is, and I think as a leader, you, you know, you, I think this idea of, um, you have, you know, I think you have to show you're human and, you know, if you're open you know, I don't have all the answers. You can kind of source those from your team. Um, you know, let's work together and do that is really important. Um, you don't have to have all the answers. And in fact, the answers won't be as good if they've all come from you. Because, yeah. you know, from an innovation point of view, that doesn't work. Um, but also, you know, about your own struggles. Because if you can show, yeah, actually I'm having, you know, I've got, you know, there's a pro- you know, problem at home. You know, maybe I've got sick parents or partner or relationship difficulty or whatever if you're, you're open about that but and you know so vulnerable enough to show that but also show that you're actually actively working to navigate those through or that you you know that you actually need help from reaching out for that help that is sending a signal to people that they can do the same mm. um, so as a leader i think we've had this idea of the kind of lone hero leader and it's not it's you know it's not it's not healthy it's not good for the leader and it's not good no. for it is absolutely not yeah. i think it's just um the key thing about leadership for me is you know and the happiness connection is that you're going to be happy as a leader when you're you can feel brave enough to lead in your own style mm. and that's regardless of the culture around you uh, because you know as a leader you drive the culture yeah um, so it's re- it's easier to do that i think i've worked in you know, several different organisations, and I would say it's definitely easier to do that when there's less direct competition between leaders at the top of a team. Mm. When everybody feels quite secure in their in their roles, you know, when that leadership group themselves feels uh, psychologically safe, mm. you know, which it's really good. It's, it's it's possible to do that in a you know in a growing team, in a very forward-looking team, mm. where you get teams where there's maybe pressure on you know, future workload or, or something like that, it can be quite easy for that leadership team to, to turn a bit inwards and, and start acting out of their usual leadership style. And I think that drives, a, you know, drives unhappiness particularly. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's being able to, to take a, a step back as leaders and think about, hang on, what is the, what's going on here? And what's the impact more broadly? And is this sustainable? I mean, I, I think a lot of this stuff is all about human sustainability, um, um, you know, psychological sustainability, and that equates to performance sustainability in organisations. So I think it is, you know, is this helping or harming us as individuals? Is this, you know, uh, us as a um, leadership team? And, you know, as a consequence, are, um, you know, the people that work, you know, that work, you know, in our team. So it is really... It's really, really um, important that that you know, that, you know people, what you know, how people sense of how things are around here is not just from what leaders say, but from what leaders do. They're kind of mic- and we're very sensitive to these micro behaviours, and people normally know if there's conflict between different you know, senior leaders and stuff. That usually kind of people have a sense of that, and that doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't. Um, yeah, really, it doesn't set the organisation up for long-term success, for sure. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to talk about your book, 
to the 10 keys to happier living. Um, I just been really key, keen to hear about where the idea came from for the book. Like, how did you pick 10? Was, was that kind of already determined? I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, or, or was that quite a lot? You know, did you think, well, actually, maybe I can just focus on five? How did that all come about? And how have you kind of defined those? We could also speak about what they are as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when I got involved, I just finished my master's. I've been in the States, came back over here, got involved in actual happiness before it had, um, st- uh, before it had launched. And, you know, the name's Action for Happiness. I mean, so the Action for Happiness, if I just, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of backstory. So it was initiated by uh, one of the sort of world's leading economists, Professor Lord Richard Layard. Um, and he had written a book in 2005 called Happiness Lessons from a News science who um, was arguing that the way we measure progress as a society um, across nations is typically by GDP, gross domestic product per capita. Uh, And that trended upwards for the last kind of 30, 40, 50 years, trended upwards, you know, blips. But if we looked at how happy people were, and economists look at life satisfaction as one key measure, that hadn't really changed. And we knew that mental ill health was growing. So he said, how do we close the gap? And that's so, so there was a kind of argument coming from economics um, that met this kind of growing body of research that we talked about earlier. So actually what happens was curiously founded by a, a, a serious economist. Um, um, and so I came along and, you know, the name is the action for happiness. We need to take action from both from a, you know, from a policy level and from a ground up and middle out, like in workplaces and stuff. Um, so... I volunteered to help define what those actions were, which I would take actions. So obviously I drilled down on all the research that I'd been encountering in this kind of, in my masters across a whole range of fields and then a whole load more besides. So look, we're looking at the areas we can take action in that the research shows can have most um, beneficial impact on our psychological well-being, if you like. So, of course, there are things that affect, there's, you know, how happy we feel at any given time is quite a complex. I think there's lots of things that influence that. And some of those things, um, as Lucy said, are not always in our control. But what are the things that are more within our control that we can influence? Um, and, you know, as long as our basic needs are met in terms of, you know, having somewhere safe to live, enough food, enough food on the table, enough money to pay for bills, actually... Um, increasing our income does still increase happiness, but focusing on that, but actually um, the return on investment, if you like, in, in terms of happiness is very, very quickly plateaus, so, or nearly plateaus. So what are the things that actually can help us feel happier? So, um, so, that, that, so, that, so I drilled down and came up with um, various different areas, and of course to to um, to help pe- you know, them kind of get you know resonate with people and engage. So that having an acronym is a really good thing. So, <laughs> so um, I play around with this and came up with the acronym Great Dream. So yeah, the, te- the so that's the acronym for the ten keys. Of course, most people dream of feeling happier and action from happiness. Um, dreams of creating a happier, kinder world yeah. together. Um, so so. Um, so really what it is, and I'll, go, I'll give you a flavour of what they are. Um, so really what they are is, um, so the areas that we can take action in, some of them are factors, things that we do in the outside world that affect how we feel on the inside, and some of them are more internal kind of habits and practices of mind, if you like, yeah. and thinking that affect how we feel and what we do on the outside world. So I call it an inside-out-outside-in framework. It's a menu, it's not a prescription. Different people need different things at different times. That's really important. And we know that having a sense of choice and control um, in our lives is a really important factor for well-being. So it's up to, you know, no one else can tell you. Um, so you can use it as a checklist. What am I doing already that is really important to maintain? And what could, could I try? So the, t- the Satanki, so, so they are based on thousands and thousands and thousands of academic studies so albeit the framework is very simple and underneath each one so in the book is lots of explains a little bit of the science behind why that that particular key matters um, from a scientific research perspective and then what does the science say we can try lots of ideas for actions so so the great um, um, so the first five keys so one is 
the first one is G is giving. It's about doing kind things for other people. And, it's, which is, uh, and the next one is about relating, sort of building and nurturing our connections with people. That's curious. So, so a fifth of the framework is actually not about us. It's about other people. Yeah. So, which is interesting to note. Um, and I can come back and talk a little bit about this sort of neuroscience and giving and stuff shortly. The E in great is about exercising and taking care of our bodies. So the physical side um, and also um, things like sleep, daylight, food, those yeah. are the sorts of food we eat. A is about awareness and living life mindfully, both um, perhaps the practice of mindfulness, but also the different little ways that even if you don't have a kind of mindfulness practice or it's not something that you've been able to kind of get, get into, what different ways can we actually be a little bit more mindful about you know, the, uh, the way we live our life? And the T in great is about trying out and keeping learning, creative, or, you know, hobbies and passions outside work are often one of the ways that we keep our brain yeah. active, um, as well as obviously we, uh, many of us would be learning at work. So that's the great. And those, I tend to say those are the kind of more, it's a bit of a rule of thumb, but those are more of the kind of externally things that yeah. affect how people on the inside. The dream is slightly more oriented towards um, internal stuff. So the D is about direction. It's about cultivating hope and optimism and, and you know, having things to look forward to, goals to look forward to. The R in dream is about resilience. Now, all of the keys, we call them 10 keys to happy living, they're also keys to resilience. Um, but within the resilience key, um, we look at the kind of thinking habits and we, you know, we touched on I touched on that earlier. Um, um, the E in dream is about emotions and this training our brains to notice what's good. Because our brain, the human brain, is naturally focused on what's wrong. And I can, I, I, I might talk, uh, this would be a great place in terms of a place to start for people. Um, I'll come to that afterwards, so let's just finish going through. Yeah. Um, so that's about training our brain to not ignore what's wrong, but also to notice what's good. The A in dream is about acceptance, really self-acceptance, two components to that. One is the self-compassion piece that I, we've already talked about, but there's also about um, actually starting to notice what are, our, what are our kind of strengths, you know, what are the kind, what's the best of us and how do we nurture that? Yeah. You know, and it's, everybody's a, a, me a mixture of strengths and weaknesses. Now, some of those things we can, we're often very focused on our weaknesses, um, and getting better at those, but actually a lot of the research shows that we can identify our strengths and get better at those. <laughs> That's the, 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 the kind of the payback in terms yeah. of development is much greater, and you work on your weaknesses only to the extent they're holding you back. So it's about those two sides, self-compassion, but also noticing you know your strengths, if you like. And the M in meaning um, is about, the M in dream is about meaning, and this is about... Um, being part of something bigger, knowing um, knowing kind of what are the sources of meaning in our lives, mm -hmm. um, um, and actually having multiple sources of meaning is really important for our resilience and coping. I mean, often if people are very driven by their work and careers, and um, that can become all-consuming and a really important source of meaning for us. You know, we're part of something bigger, it's a way we can make a difference in the world, etc. But if, if that's our only source of meaning, that can leave us vulnerable. And we know that research when people had multiple, clear on multiple sources of meaning, you know, it could be three, it could be five, whatever your thing is, um, and kept, had ways of keeping those spinning, you know, nurturing those, they were actually more resilient. Because if something goes wrong, you know, something goes wrong at work, you've actually got these other things that can keep you connected and part of yeah. you know, feeling part of the world whereas if it's all our work and something goes wrong then um, you know we get made redundant or you know we don't get permission then that can you know we can crumble because all our eggs have been in that our meaning eggs have been in that basket yeah so, so keys um, so a bit of a flow but there's that, and I'll give you I'll give you the links that you can um, people can look them up because uh, um you know, there, there's freely available resources, and obviously, if people want to find out more, there's the book, which is designed to be a handbook. So it's very people can dip in, and it's very practical. You don't have to read it from cover to cover. And on the, I think you wanted to touch upon the emotions piece, and I think that is, 
I think so relevant to everyone at the moment, considering the current situation whereby, you know, we are in a lockdown. It's very difficult. There are a lot of different emotions that are happening that we're being subjected to. Um, and quite often it's very easy, as you say, to focus on the bad and almost sometimes to focus on the bad because, well, you don't quite know when the good's going to happen. Um, yeah. And also you don't want to raise your own hopes uh, because we've seen in the past that, you know, if you can't get through something and then you've raised your hopes that something happening, it can make it worse. And like, yeah. how do we manage those kind of very difficult and nuanced emotions at this particular time as well, considering I think lots of people will be feeling a certain way? And how do we think more positively about these things? Yeah, so, well, I mean, first thing to note is that, as I mentioned, that the human brain is hardwired to focus on what's wrong. Yeah. Because our, our brain, the human brain evolved when we were hunters and gatherers out there um and life was much more kind of in terms of life and death you know um scenarios life was much more risky in those days you're hunting for food that could be a big predator you know yeah so you we became acutely sensitive to read our environment to risks so a little rustle in the grass could be a nice gentle breeze but it could also be a, a hungry predator about to leap out there so much safer to kind of assume it was the hungry predator yeah yeah so that we could um, respond accordingly so our, so this kind of you know, there's a really famous psychological paper called bad is stronger than the good in terms of emotion so we so we we um we notice what's wrong much more readily we into our brains naturally this is all very instinctive you know in our kind of more primitive brain um our brains more naturally um um interpret ambiguous neutral things like the grass rustling as as potential danger and we um uh, when we've got those things we hold on to them much more we weight those things more um more strongly and of course then what we're holding on to guides what we kind of pay attention to so there's this natural tense called the natural negativity bias and this is not again this is this is for these evolutionary reasons i, I like to know why and I, I, it's quite interesting for me to kind of, well, why did this thing evolve? What was the rationale behind that? But of course, our lives today, although we have problems, most of us don't th- face kind of these in-the-moment, in-your-face kind of, you're about to be eaten by a hungry, yeah. you know, predator right now. Um, but, but so we've got this mechanism that's not, you know, suited to modern life. So what we have to do is tra- literally train our brain to notice what's right, which is not ignoring what's wrong, but it's also notice what's right. Yeah. Because what happens, emotions aren't just feelings, they have a physiological component. So our body changes, typically they change our, our body to react in a certain way. So most of us, when we feel a sense of fear, which is the most common one, our bodies go into fight or flight mode. And most of us will kind of, you will know, will have heard of that, we know that. So adrenaline starts pumping, you know, um, you know we're kind of ready to kind of fight or flee. So our body, lots of body changes happen in that. Pleasant emotion, you know, uh, all, so all emotions have those physiological components. So pleasant emotions um, feel, um, they, they tend to feel more diffuse, but they also have a physiological component. But our brains just often overlook that. So when we train our brain to notice, to also notice what's right in a day, small things, um, it can really make a big difference. So in, in one of the early positive psychology experiments, People were asked each night for one week to write down three things from their day, look back over their day, three things they enjoyed, were grateful for, or pleased about. Write them down, you know, word or two on week each, maybe think about why those were good. Do that each night for one week. They measured both kind of um, a sort of multi-factor measure of happiness, sort of well-being measures, and also propensity to feel down. And they measured that, you know, before the week, after the week, and at intervals for six months out. They found how happy people felt, again, using this multi-factor measure, increased over a period of six months, and the propensity to feel down decreased. Now, from that, you know, probably took people, if I was running a workshop, I have to run workshops and things and training programs, I get people to do that, it usually takes about a minute or two. So it's probably a 10 to 15 minute week investment yeah. over the course of a week. The return in terms of how happy people felt over six months was really quite significant, was very significant. Um, because what that's doing is it's not asking people to invent stuff, it's not asking people to kind of come up, you know, create stuff, but it's actually training people's brains to notice those small moments of good in the day. 
So right now we're in lockdown. Yeah, but I can actually sit down, I can sit at my desk and I can say, well, actually, I can look out onto greenery. That could be one of my good things. Actually, I do notice, and I do notice, um, a little patch of blue in the sky, you yeah. know, compared to earlier this morning when it was chucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, that could be a good thing, actually, if I can go out and get a little walk outside, you know, that you know, that could be my good thing. These don't have to be huge things, but what happens, and this is the research of Barbara Fredrickson, um, who's a psychobiologist, um, she found that these pleasant emotions also have the physical change. So when we experience a momentary, these momentary, just fleeting, pleasant emotional experiences, we are more open to other people, we're more trusting other people, we recognize people from other cultures better, we are more open to ideas, we're more flexible in our thinking, we're better at creative problem solving, we see more options. And little by little, those, that sort of cycle, she calls that the broaden effect, builds our psychological resources time so it's a broaden and build effect and there's also some re, um, evidence that suggests it helps to buffer against the damage of prolonged um, exposure to stress and anxiety can do in our brain so it helps to kind of undo some of that damage so the broaden build undo effect so it's really simple so i said if you've never tried it tonight you know get a bit of note get a bit of paper and a pen by your bed so prepare in advance yeah you want to get into bed and then think oh um but and then think about three things from your day that you've enjoyed, pleased about, or grateful for. Tiny things. People found actually help them switch off and go to sleep. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously, go to sleep thinking positively. So then you probably, yeah, exactly, say switch off more easily, not thinking about the negative things that happen in the day. Maybe even have some nice dreams from it because you're actually thinking yeah, nicely. I think about, maybe think about why you enjoyed it. What was it about them that you enjoyed? Because all yeah. of this is embedding in your brain. So what you're doing is you're reliving those are, would you normally have stopped and thought about those things that the sky was blue or that you can see sunshine would you stop and thought about that no they wouldn't have done but this is about squeezing these kind of benefits out it's training our brains to do that and it, it you know has all those effects that build up and it builds over time so that's a simple way to do it and actually there's some more recent research that shows that when people did that at the end of their working day specifically about the working day so three things you know, I enjoyed or pleased about or grateful for my day, my work day at work today. It um, not only kind of helped them, you know, had a mood boost and helped them reduce stress, but actually helped them detach from work. So I mean, great I really- practical advice, and that's just the kind of thing that we like to hear. And I mean, I love trying out new things like that and, and seeing how effective it is. And as you say, it's a really great way to connect us all in a very difficult time. And um, so, the more things like that we can do, the better, really. Only that I'm going to rush out and buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that's the um, the key message to me. It's uh, it, you know, when I when I saw the material that Action for Happiness was publishing, I thought, yes, that's something very different that I haven't come across so far. And then you know, it's this feeling of, and you're never too, you know, it's never too late to to learn. You know how to change your mindset like that. Mm. Yeah. You know, I have the um, I have the, the good fortune to. Uh, my husband is, I think, one of those people that you said Vanessa might have some uh, some some problems himself because he's very much like you know every day is a good day. Yeah. You know, and um, and I often think kind of you know how how do you get to to thinking like that? And it's just picking up these simple tips. And, you know, just trying one or two of them and finding something that works. So I thought that was so useful for me. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Are you and your husband may well not have problems. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you guys have that as well. But we, are, we do have, of course, we have, we, our personalities and our, our early influence, kind of whether we're kind of born optimists and born glass um, half full or glass half empty. But the research is definitely showing wherever you are, you can still learn practical kind of strategies that mm. can actually help, you know, help boost your um, well-being. It's not changing, you know, if you're born a kind of really deep, you know, pessimist, you're unlikely to flip to the world <laughs> optimist. But you can actually move that strategy and it will, you know, it helps you and it helps others. Because, mm. I mean, one thing I think I'd finish off is that sometimes we think about taking care of our well-being is, is not, you know, it's secondary to we've got important tasks at work or with our families and all that stuff. Um, but actually, taking care of our well-being, and we think, well, maybe it's a bit indulgent and selfish. We never quite get around to those activities. But actually, it's not selfish. Um, and, you know, it's that, it's that 
thing that they say on our airplanes when we, you know, we can remember back to go on airplanes. Yeah, um, put your own oxygen mask on first. And it's not just that, is that how we feel and our behaviours have a ripple effect out to other people. Yeah. Studies have shown that my mood states, how I impact, how I interact, not just with the people that I'm interacting with directly, but people that they go on to interact with and the people they go interact with. I am influencing that. So my mood states, how much interactions I have, have a ripple effect out for three degrees of separation. Oh, interesting. And that came from actually a study um, called the Framingham Heart Study. It was looking at a whole load of health behaviours coming out of Harvard. Um, so, you know, so it's a shared responsibility. So we can all... Man, it doesn't mean to say we have to be happy, clappy, yellow, smiley face, but noticing how we're feeling and having some strategies and tactics to manage that is really important. And the other thing, I know we're out of time, but I think it's also important. And coming back to the 10 keys, and the first two being about connections with others, is one thing we can all do is think about what's something, how can I be kind to other people? You know, and, and, you know, whether it's kind of reaching out to somebody we know is struggling, maybe one of your colleagues right now is having a tough time or they live on their own or whatever, it's just keeping in touch with them. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, just just a big thing. Um, and asking for help when you need it, uh, you know, it creates the sort of world that I think we probably all want to, to live in. And remember, you know, we can ask for help not just when we've got problems, but actually right now there's a lot of us thinking, well, I've got some bit more time at home. What can I learn? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so everyone of your colleagues, yeah. got, uh, you know, or friends, you know, can teach you something. You know, so, you know, ask for help in those ways. Because actually when we ask for help, not only is it creating an environment where we can all be a bit more authentic and ask for help when we need it, but actually when we help someone else, it boosts the reward centers in our brain. So we, it's almost like we've got a gift or a present. So we often think it being the, the beneficiary of the help is the person it boosts, but actually boosts the giver too. Yeah. And there's a game, you can, there's a kind of, I think there's an evolutionary mechanism behind that because we're social creatures. Anyway, I should finish there. Oh, well, brilliant. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm actually kind of blown away by the amount I've learned and also the breadth of your knowledge and how everything is evidenced like, by studies. I, I mean... I've read quite a few books on this topic and I personally you know, find the field so interesting, but the way you can retain all of that information and knowledge is just amazing. And I've definitely learned a lot. I think one of my kind of the favorite things that you mentioned today was about that wise coach and turning your inner critic into a wise coach as if you'd have that personal coaching system inside your head. I think that's really great advice and hopefully something I can work on doing myself. Um, but thank you very much for joining us and I hope our listeners will also find that incredibly useful and fascinating Um, and also pick up the book as Lucy said you know 10 keys to happier living book you know get hold of it give it a read it's there check out action for happiness Um, and then to our listeners also uh, please do rate review um, and subscribe and give us some feedback Um, and yes and share and share this stuff can really help people that can literally change lives yeah absolutely so thank you very much